Hi everybody, it's me, Jeff Openshaw, the host of This Week in Mormons. What is This Week in Mormons? It is the original Latter-day Saint podcast focused on a weekly rundown of news and whimsy. Please join us at thisweekinmormons.com where you can read our blogs, uh, you know, listen to these posts. We actually get a lot of our listeners come from streaming on our website, surprisingly enough. But if you're interested in podcasting, like the apps themselves, you can subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, um, all sorts of fun things. And I want to give a big... A big shout out to our Patreon people who help keep the lights on. Our lights are getting more expensive, it turns out. I'm trying to work on that with our server fees. So uh, three bucks a month or so, we'd love that. Patreon.com slash This Week in Mormons. You help make the show possible and literally make it economically viable, even though we regard this as something of a nonprofit institution, I guess, in a way. I don't know. Richie Stebman would be disappointed in me right now. Uh, anyway, that's all. I'm joined this week. Well, you know, we had the Twin Sisters last week, and this week... We have, for the first time ever, the twin mother. Hello. The twin mom. That's right. My dear mother, Barbara Openshaw. Barbara Evans Openshaw, as you go professionally, because you like to you like to lean on your maiden name and remind people that you're not married to my father anymore, which is like a it's which is a social boon for you not to drag that weight around. The Openshaw. Openshaw's a dumb last name. We can all admit that, right? Why are you putting all these words into my mouth? <laughs> Now we know how you feel about your last name. Okay. Openshaw's kind of a dumb last name. I'm okay with that. I'm on the record with that. I, I, I proudly wear what's been given me, but at the same but time. But I did give him my maiden name for a middle name. So he is Jeffrey Evans Openshaw, just yeah. like I'm Barbara Evans Openshaw. Just tell him my grandma's maiden name and maybe give him my place of birth and my elementary school and now everyone can steal my identity. Mm -hmm. Just like I did to Kurt the other week and he didn't even realize it. That was beautiful. <laughs> That was a lot of fun. So my mom's here, everybody, and we thought, my, my mom's been a big supporter of the show for a long time, uh, and she cares a lot about Latter-day Saint news and issues similar to you know the things we cover on this program. In and fact, you may think that Jeff came up with all this stuff by himself, but he is his mother's brain transferred to another generation in many ways. So I take some credit for the brilliant things he says, not... Not for the dumb things, of course. Never, not the never the dumb things. But <laughs> well, you should, you should. My mom and I are are buddies, and uh, I mean, I remember. You, we'll get, we'll let you, you know, introduce yourself. But yeah, I've have, I've got memories as a kid, like watching political conventions with you. I remember sitting on that living room floor watching like the RNC because you just love that Reagan, love him so dear, and we had a grand old time. Anyway, but why don't you introduce yourself, mom? Tell people about you. What's your background? Who are you? I mean, I'm not, I didn't just bring in my mom because, oh, my mom's here. And I'm like, <laughs> like I want to put her through that. I thought she'd have fun doing the show. And she's got a great background for all this stuff. Anyway, so tell us. Well, Barbara, mom, I don't know what I'll call you during the show. But I know what not to call you during the show. Which is, you do. Which is, <laughs> I didn't say it. She thought I was going to She's so nervous. This is great. <laughs> I'm a native Californian and did the usual you know, Mormon girl goes to BYU, came back to California, and uh, got married, which didn't last. So as a result of that, and also before I got married, I was doing some interesting things. Uh, I was a journalism major with a political science minor at BYU, and I got out of college and I ended up working for Richard Worthland's polling firm. Hence, Jeff. And this is Richard Worthland, who was actually the brother of Joseph 
was one of the mm-hmm. apostles. And Richard was also a general authority at one yes. point in time, I believe. Yeah. That, legi- uh, that legitimizes you in the eyes of our viewers. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so we did surveys for uh, President Reagan was our most famous client. But I did lots of survey work for various senators, congressional representatives, uh, lots of issues and things around the country. So I've, because of the household I grew up in, I was always very interested in public policy, things going on. My mom was an elected official. Uh, so I did that and then transferred over in the later years of my career to a firm that was doing uh, a lot of uh, public policy work where I kind of interpreted survey research for them and things, but it was more looking at foreign policy. And then I went to China for a couple of years, so maybe we'll talk about that. And somewhere in there, I had these four lovely children and attempted to raise them, and most of the time, they turned out okay. Yeah. Yeah. Melanie, kind of a wild card, right? <laughs> She's going to get you for this. She, she probably will. She, she listens to the show. I mean, what do you want me to say? Anyways, um, why are you here this week, Mom? What brings you here Well, Virginia? Usually I come back to see the three adorable little sons of Jeff and his beautiful wife, Danielle. But this week, the exciting event on the agenda is the birthday of your twim host, Jeff Openshaw. That's true. Coming up on Wednesday, September the 8th. It's a landmark one. But we won't say which landmark. Are you checking your computer to make sure that's when my birthday is? No, I'm checking my computer because it's shut off. Because sometimes dad forgets my birthday. So I just want to make sure you still know when it actually is happening. I I remember his birthday, yes. Yeah. He thinks I should tell the story of his birth, but I don't think we need to do that. Do you want me to tell the story of my my birth? Sure. What do you remember? remember, Okay. So it was very dark and kind of muffled sounds all around me. Very muffled sounds. Um, I could kind of make out some screaming and stuff, then like an intense pressure, an intense pressure, and then a burst of light and lots of noise all around me. Lots of noise everywhere. Father bites the cord. It was beautiful. Yes, that was just fabulously accurate. Okay. <laughs> anyway, maybe we okay, should. We got dying kids above us, as always. Um Usually we record twin when my kids are in bed so that their death journey. I don't know what they're always doing upstairs. There's so much yelling when I'm down here working. During they're the day. thumping. There's so much yelling. My colleagues at work all laugh, thankfully, during the many calls we have because they just hear so much yelling and jumping and screaming and things above while we're trying to get work done. That's half the fun. That's the fun of working from home, Mom. It's good times. I know. I worked at home for many years with children interrupting Worked me is constantly. It's a, lo- a loose term, but yes. yes. We used to, so we called mom, we lovingly called her a chair tester because we were convinced she didn't actually do anything at her job <laughs> because she seemed to have so much time to devote to goofing around with us, which was great. We had a grand time. We just assumed you had no actual work to do, which is why we called you a chair tester or you were some kind of like a fall guy for some sort of front perhaps and they were just paying you <sighs> to have, to be that role. I don't know. I'm convinced now in my adulthood you did in fact do work. I did. I did have a real job. I did get paid. The original telecommuter. That's what you were. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of good me- me- Your Your job was great. I remember one thing, because you did a lot of market research, as you said. Remember when I did that uh, science camp at UC Irvine a couple mm-hmm. of summers, right? It was kind of, it was a goofy experience, but it was fun. Uh, it was a good way to get me doing something in the summer. You'd pick me up from it, because you worked in Irvine, you know, close to the, close to John Wayne Airport. 
and I'd have to hang out for a couple of hours while you'd finish up the day. And I just like sit in your little conference room. And I remember the one thing that pops in my mind is you, I think Taco Bell was a client or, you know, t- yes. Pepsi Cola was your client, whatever. It might Taco been Bell client. was yeah. our client. And so you had tape after tape of Taco Bell promos because you were sending, you were using them for focus groups and things. And the way to entertain myself for hours is I watched Taco Bell commercials that I could see on TV. <laughs> um, and this was in the 90s. I remember this one in the 90s when they had that guy, there was a guy on a piano. The piano was on a trailer and he's like, it's very 90s, like singing some dramatic song about why Taco Bell is awesome. That's how I spent my childhood. So no wonder this is how he turned out. Yeah, right? I mean, so. who, who I am today. Um, well, we're maybe glad- maybe we should, you know, talk about religion or something like I mean, that. We could. There's always some bantering. I'm just happy you're here, Mom. It's, uh, you're a good sport for doing this. It's your first, you got some first time jitters, right? Yep. Yeah. But you're doing okay? I'm begging him not to humiliate me. That's her you big- will be the judge. <laughs> For some reason, that's her biggest fear that I'm going to humiliate. I would never humiliate you. She's flaring her nostrils at me right now in a way that only my mom knows how to do. I have never mastered that physical art of the nostril flaring. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's stuff in the news. It's one of the, we got kind of a grab bag week, folks. It's a mix, you know, different things. No, no leading story, I would say. Nothing quite like the stuff we've been digesting, like with other Holland, you know, for the past couple of weeks where I've definitely seen, I've seen plenty of content from, of course, the, the more liberal side of the church. I've seen plenty in the apologetics realm, making the most of it. And, uh, I don't think you'll, you'll, I, I hope I'm not overstepping here, but you've related story where you, we have instances, this is a perfect example, um, of people who, no, this is in my own life. But oh, like, okay. with, you, we basically we see many people who, from more weeks prior to that, took major issue with the first presidency statement on vaccines and on and on mask wearing and all those things to help combat COVID. And people will say like, "I'm not listening to that. I have my own agency." And then we pivot that over into the Elder Holland situation, and these same individuals would be like, "Well, I, I support the brethren, obviously, right?" And I just think it's it's been a very a very small period of time to have a great example of the case study of our, our selective obedience as Latter-day Saints and the ways that we um, can very much pick and choose what matters to us most. It's, but I think it's quite ironic that um, we'll buck the brethren in one area and then be like, no, no, oh, I am, I am 100% on board. Why would I not be? Support the brethren. Come on. Well, the controversy over the First Presidency letter and vaccines and masks, which let me add that I and my offspring are firm proponents of vaccination. Listeners to the show would never know that about Never, me. never, never. never. So we blame glad. it on the fact my dad and two of my brothers are doctors, you know, so we kind of got this medical viewpoint. Because we've seen during COVID, all doctors are responsible actors who say the right thing. Hey, 98% of doctors are vaccinated. Maybe it's only 96%, but... Where did you get that statistic? Did you make that up? No. I read it two places, this but fake, I don't remember you read where... Where'd you read this, huh? Huh? Probably liberal media. Where was the slate? Did slate give this to you? No, I don't remember where I read it. Okay, fair enough. Now I'm trying to come up with a point I was going to make. I don't even remember. No, this the controversy did get me thinking about something that President Nelson asked us to do. What? A couple of years ago that I kind of didn't pay much attention to, which was make sure that we referred to ourselves as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You didn't pay attention to that? Well, I paid attention, but I okay. did not really implement it in my life. So, and thinking about the fact that- and That's why you haven't had the Spirit with you for three years. <sighs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> He's a bad son sometimes. <laughs> 
Oh, boy. Anyway, no, I think we do. It's true. We often are rather selective, and we have our reasons for why we listen and don't listen or obey and don't obey. And I think it's good for us to do some self-reflection and consider why and why we don't do things. Yeah. That is all. Wise words from your mother. And by the way, this dovetails a little bit, and this is kind of just a mention. Newsweek... And the best way to sum this up is what happened to Newsweek? I mean, new, not that I've Newsweek hasn't really been like my source for years or anything like that, but the headline literally reads majority of Mormons buck leadership's push for masks and a COVID vaccine. Uh, and I, b- after reading this article a few times, I even went and made sure I, I, I understood what the term bucks is supposed to mean. Cause I believe bucking leadership means you're not listening to them, mm-hmm. but I wanted to make sure I understood because their headline does not match the content at all. And I saw some people on our Facebook page said like, well, what did you expect from the media? This goes beyond like this should, this is not that this is just like bad. Ed- this is just a bad this editor. This pathetic is pathetic headline writing. This is pathetic headline writing that makes no sense given the content because the content stresses that 65% of Latter-day Saints said they were pro-vaccine and received a plan to get at least one dose. Only 15% said they were hesitant. Um, that is a lo- that is a lower number than Catholics, but a higher number than evangelicals, for example. And basically, the long and short of it Wait, is, and nineteen percent said they would not get the vaccine. Yes, yes. Don't forget that. Part. And so that's that's part of our culture and something we're obviously working through as Latter Day Saints. I mean, clearly, it's a divisive issue on many fronts. I'm just baffled where Newsweek is getting the term majority bucks the leadership on this front because I don't understand it at all. Because if sixty five percent support. We know from our basic math that that would leave a mere 35% that could perhaps be bucking the leadership. And is 35% a majority, Jeff? I don't know. I mean, it's not a super majority. I feel like that much. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did you flunk math in high school? <laughs> I was a poli-sci major. In high school? Anyway. And no, thank you. And I didn't have to do math in college because BYU is goofy. And if you do foreign language credits, you don't take math classes for some stupid reason. Okay. In case you're being misled by my son, yeah, 65% is a majority that accepts the idea of yeah. vaccines. So- I mean, unless Newsweek's definition of a majority is a, a like impeachment level 66% and like that's what it takes to be considered a majority. I don't know. Anyways, Newsweek. It's an alternate fact. Bad, 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 bad job, Newsweek. Bad, bad job. I don't know what you're thinking there. Dumb, dumb headline writing. Very, very dumb. Very, very dumb. Uh, Why don't we pause for a second, Mom? You mentioned China. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell us about China. We can take a break from some... I mean, we're not, we haven't gotten fully into the news yet, but I know you'd love to tell us about the church in China. I think a lot of people hear bits and pieces about it. I think many people know someone who's kind of been involved somehow in China, but you lived there for a couple of years and uh, learned yes, a lot about it. I was fortunate enough to go with a BYU program, the BYU China Teachers Program, that sends, I don't know, 70 to 80 teachers a year over to China, mostly to teach oral English, but sometimes other classes at universities throughout China. And this program's been going on, I think, for over 30 years. Uh, and we're not the only university that does that. There's many universities in the United States and the English-speaking world that are over there. Uh, The Chinese people start learning English when they're just in like six years old, but a lot of them have never worked with a native speaker. And they do think English fluency is very important, so they're looking for teachers. So I had the great opportunity to go over there and live in a culture that was completely foreign to me for two years from 
fall of 2017 through the summer of 2019. And as part of that, in addition to getting exposed to Chinese culture, also really had a chance to see how the church is run in a place that is about as dissimilar from the Mountain West as you could possibly get. Uh, So let me just explain a few things about the church there. Okay. Is Uh, it thriving? Is it huge? And do they play basketball courts or soccer courts at the buildings? I don't and do the buildings have one doors? You know what one doors are, right? The accordion door is that one uh-huh. company that has some kind of monopoly on all church construction globally? Anyway. Well, within the People's Republic of China itself, I doubt there even are any church buildings, church-owned. There are some in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a whole different story. And before I get into this, let me caveat it a bit, because in June of 2019, Uh, the Chinese government started cracking down on Hong Kong. And so a lot has changed. And then COVID hit about seven or eight months after that. So the church wasn't very big, and I'm pretty sure it's even smaller now. (laughs) But because of requirements by the government, the LDS church in China kind of has to operate on two tracks. We have the uh, expatriate track people who hold foreign passports. That's how they define it. And that is part of the church that I experienced there. We have branches around China, some wards, this and that. um, And it is all expatriates. We had members from Brazil and Korea, Taiwan, England, South Africa. Taiwan's part of China. I'm, I'm confused. Taiwan is not part of China. Whoa, hey <laughs> She's not going back there, folks. You're not getting that visa again. Sorry, man. We're hoping you have an understanding of things Chinese, so we don't have to explain all this stuff. Anyway, um, but uh, the native Chinese population has to have their own church structure, and we could never know who they were or have inter- any interaction with them. And didn't know how many of them there were. We do know that native Chinese young people have left China as missionaries and gone out to the rest of the world. But uh, part of the Chinese government's rules is that we cannot interact with them. I lived in Xi'an, China, home of the famous terracotta warriors. It's a city of somewhere between 10 and 14 million. You kind of never know. And by the way, practically every city in China is like a city of 10 million people. That's just the way it goes. We were aware that there was a small branch of Chinese members. And uh, we had someone visit us in the summer who had actually been in China on and off over the last 20 years before they came up with a structure. And he knew a little bit about the branch there and said there were a few native priesthood holders now that the branch had been started with two women who had joined the church elsewhere and come back to China. And I think that is still the case for most Chinese members. I don't think you can are allowed to get baptized in China. I'm really not sure. But so there's the Chinese government does not want any religions to have a higher authority than the Chinese government. 
Hence, public arguments over things like uh, with the Catholic Church, because uh, the Chinese government wanted to appoint the bishop over the Chinese population, and uh, they won that argument with Rome. And so his first loyalty is to uh, the Chinese government. So the church kind of keeps a low profile, not wanting to get into trouble. So we knew nothing about who the native members were, and we were told never to discuss religious matters or our faith or anything there for fear of getting into trouble, getting kicked out of the country or something. So that's a whole other story. But briefly, the uh, church structure there, in the larger cities, there's a district in uh, centered on Beijing, one on Shanghai, one on Shenzhen, which is north of Hong Kong. And there are actually some wards there. These are the expatriate ones we talked about. But those are major cities that, at least up until the time of the pandemic, had uh, people there on business, government, sometimes students doing internships. And they had like full wards, I think maybe a couple in each city, and had the full church program. There were families over there with children and things. And so they were running primary, seminary, all these different things. Where I was, I was part of the Central China International District, which is the largest district in the world because it covers all of China except for those three areas. And a district in this case is essentially the precursor to a stake. Yes. Typically. But a district is usually governed under the auspices of a mission or mission president. I imagine in your case, it was probably governed directly from Salt Lake. I don't know. But who knows? Who knows? about? Uh, but we had four branches... And I was one of them. Xi'an branch, because of the presence of the BYU teachers, we had about 20, 25 BYU teachers in Xi'an. So we had a fairly robust branch with about 35 people. Great programs. It was really, really a good experience. But I think the most interesting thing there is the Central China International District branch itself, which is a completely virtual branch that is spread out over like 2,000 by 2,000 miles, uh, has anywhere from maybe 50 to 150 people attending every Sunday, and they all attend virtually. It's all like call-in church. And uh, long before we were doing Zoom sacrament meetings in the United States, uh, they were kind of doing that, and they would take an eight-minute break when people would administer the sacrament quietly, but there's a lot of places there where maybe you've got two or three members in a city, maybe you don't even have a priesthood holder, so they don't have the opportunity to take the sacrament sometimes for months at a time. And a lot of these branch members have never met each other. The last, one of the last Sundays I was in China, we had two visitors that were members of that branch, but they lived in different areas of China, they'd never met each other. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting to administer this program. You know, they, they have seminary, they have primary, young men, young women, all done virtually all around the country. And Hong Kong, at the time I was there, was this wonderful beacon of religious freedom, which the Chinese government is trying to tamp down on. Mm-hmm. We have the temple there, which closed for renovations and has not yet open, probably due to COVID. But I did hear recently at a conference I attended at BYU 
they told us that uh, the Chinese government crackdown on freedoms in Hong Kong has not negatively impacted the church there so far. Anyway. So far. Now, I imagine your experiences have kind of thrown into sharp relief the debates about religious freedom and what that means. Because the things we talk about when we talk about religious freedom here in the United States, and even especially random general conference talks will mention it, rarely go into this area. It's always, you know, really through the lens of what religious freedom means in the U.S., which is a very, Mm -hmm. very, very different thing. Um, And would you agree with that? Would you especially did your time there kind of open your eyes to what religious freedom could actually mean when it's like your, your genuine freedom to worship is not a guaranteed thing. Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, I was very aware intellectually of things like that because I'd read about it and was interested in issues like this, but it's, it's different to be living it, to be told things like when we would go on Sundays, we would never say we're going to church. We met at, goodness, I don't even know how much I should, tip off but well that's yeah to be the church rented we wrote and then a structure and by the way saying that yes we know the church is is quiet about chinese stuff so don't feel pressured to say yeah. more than you should about anything but we would say we're going to the villa and chinese people pretty much don't go to church on sundays i don't know what they thought of these like a dozen americans all dressed up that go traipsing across the city on sunday mornings but we were very quiet about it one time we were singing and it was a beautiful day. We had the windows open and somebody knocked on the door and our branch president went back to answer it. And it was a neighbor who said, Oh, can I come sing with you? I like the music. Uh, and he had, you know, sometimes this is awkward because we have to say, you know, legally we made an agreement with your government that no, we, we cannot worship with you and we cannot talk about religion with you. I had students ask me, will you teach me how to pray? I said, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) I made an agreement with your government. I can't do that. And I had a couple of students kind of sneakily tell me, I am a Christian, and uh, kept that very quiet uh, because they could get in trouble for that. So it is interesting that these students who I really grew to love, and I taught about, ooh, 250 a semester. So several hundred of them. There are certain ways I could never really get to know them because we could talk about family. We could talk about, you know, food. They're big foodies over there, but you could never talk about religion or politics. Mm-hmm. So it was very the, the strange. China, the Chinese have figured out the key to a successful Thanksgiving, apparently. They've, <laughs> <laughs> they've got it. <laughs> Good point. But anyway, it is, it's, it's fascinating to be there, and it does make one much more appreciative of the freedoms that we do have to, you know, banter on like Jeff and I are doing today, or just general conversations that we are able to have here in the Western world yeah. that, that you can't have there, because you could get um, th- thrown out of the country, or I could get my students thrown into jail and, you know, did not want to do those things. It's interesting also, uh, we were advised in our training at BYU that this was not a situation of, oh, let's see how close to the edge we can get, you right, know, let's right. see if we can push it. It's like, no, stay as far away from it as possible. And so I tried to adhere to that. Well, good. That's kind of, do you feel, um, being having been back in the States and you're aware of our conversations on religious freedom here, 
do you agree with the narratives or the fear that that our our freedoms to worship in the United States and Western countries is at risk as they would as many would have us believe? Not to an enormous extent. I mean, you see things being nibbled away here and there, but uh, I don't see us having you know, government announcing, "Hello, we're the supreme authority, and you know you can't you can't worship, and we're going to take away your books." And uh, the Chinese government is having the Bible rewritten to uh, you know make the Chinese government the supreme authority. I. I want to read that. I want to read Robbie. that. Too. <laughs> like, <what's> that? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> like, they probably love the section when Jesus says, "You know, you you know, pay. You know, you got to give unto Caesar that which is unto Caesar." They're probably going to lean on that one pretty hard. <laughs> anyway, I I don't have a huge fear of that. I mean, I suppose anything is possible, as we've sadly seen over the last few years. Many things are possible that we'd never imagined, yeah. but. Uh, I think we're we're pretty darn free here, and it's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for the thanks for the recap on that, Mom Barbara. I'm gonna call you Mom Barbara. I'm gonna call you Son Jeffy. Oh boy. Oh. Well, oh, well hold on. You threw Jeffy out uh-oh, there. Uh oh. Uh oh. I'm in trouble. And you now. told me I wasn't allowed to. Oh, she's waving. This is this is this is war. This is unfair. This is unfair. This is. I'm sorry. Oh boy, Mom. I I never really called him Jeffy. No, you want to know what my weird nickname is? Go yes, ahead, go ahead and tell him. Go, go ahead and tell him. What For my... unknown reasons, I called him Jeffrey Beveridge. That's still a thing, people, as well. I don't, and I, and it's inexplicable. I, I have no idea why I ever started calling him Jeffrey Beveridge. It's just an unknown. And you still do. I think you're, I think you were the only person who called me that. Yeah. I have no idea. Dad has, for some reason, slid into calling me Jeffster in the past handful of years. This was not a thing either. I don't know where this has come from, but I'm like, okay, all right, whatever. But yes, Jeff became Jeffrey Beveridge at a young age. Do you remember the time when I was probably 11 or so, and I, I tried to give myself a nickname? Do you remember this at all? Well, do tell. Let's see if I remember. I remember it pretty well. I think I was like a blazer. I was kind of doing that level of scouting. And I decided, because I think some of my friends had little nicknames, and I want, I was just Jeff. So I thought I could be Jeebs, G-E-E-B-S. Oh, I remember you trying to be Jeebs. And this was like a thing. I wanted to be called Jeebs by everybody. And to this day, there's one member, uh, you know, Mike Moe. Okay, my old my old Blazer advisor. He was present during this, and he honored my desire to be Jeebs. <laughs> and he's the only person, to this day, if I see him, he'd be like, Jeebs, what's going on? <laughs> he's the only one. My wife thinks it's hilarious that I tried to give myself a nickname. I just never, I've never had one other than beverage, which I guess I should just lean into. Well, I, I guess, am the beverage. I guess when your full name is Jeffrey, then Jeff becomes your nickname. So, yeah, which is fine, I guess. Whatever. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, let's, uh, some other random things going down in the Mormon news world. I'm going to give you a couple of quick mentions of things that have happened. Some, some guy allegedly burned some meeting houses down in Southwest Utah, then crashed his car in Zion National Park. So that's a thing. I thought I saw another account of this that the man claimed to be a god, but that's not in the Salt Lake Tribune's article. But I would not be surprised if the Salt Lake Tribune has not updated this article since they wrote it. Because this is not the kind of article you update, really. Though it does say updated. Anyway, that, I have no nothing else to say about that other than the fact it happened. And he was doing it at like four in the morning and fortunately got caught before he torched very many more. Yeah. It looked like he was just... 
just having, around just town. having fun just lining up meeting houses and then crashing his car in Zion. And I believe, Zion. isn't at least one of the three significantly damaged? Yeah. Like, they're not going to be able to meet there for a long time. Very sad. People love burning down the meeting houses. And speaking of burning down the house, California, perpetually on fire, it seems nowadays. Sadly uh, true. Like much of the West, if this will load up. So the wildfire is threatening a famed Mormon battalion historic site. Now, when you see this headline as a Mormon, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got wildfires like creeping up on Old Town San Diego. I feel like I'd hear about this. I think a lot of East County would be completely in ruins by this point. <laughs> Uh, it's not this. So the Caldor wildfire in California is threatening uh, a site where three members of the Mormon battalion are buried. Ezra Allen, Daniel Browett, and Henderson Cox were scouting a route through the Sierra Nevada in June of 1848 when they were murdered. And other members of the battalion found their bodies a few days later and buried them. And today it's a stop along Highway 88, the Car- Carson Pass Highway. So due to the fire, uh, we don't have any updates on this. It's a few days old now, but I haven't seen any news. And I imagine if this had been burned down... Uh, LDS news would be on top of it. So hopefully it's going to be okay. I didn't know this existed though. I mean, I think Mormon, Me Mormon battalion, all I think is San Diego. I don't think about mountain passes in the Sierras. I don't even think that was, that was even part of the March. When did they go there? I, Maybe these guys weren't in the battalion. Maybe these were the punks who left Brigham Young to go pan for gold and we're trying to rebrand <laughs> it. I don't know. I don't know about this. I thought there was an, interesting article in LDS Living about polygamy, a new book that is out about polygamy. I don't know if Jeff's mentioned this before, but polygamy is part of our family history. And it's come so, out here and there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I tend to follow things like this. But by the way, I mean like hardcore, like my mom's grandpa was a polygamist. Straight up. Yeah. Yes. Um, at one time, my late mother and her younger brother, until they both passed away in the last few years, were the two. Wait, Erin like, di- died. Yes. Oh wow. Were the only uh, living people from a legitimate polygamous family. This this what made gets it legitimate. This gets into post manifesto polygamy yeah, and all why, sorts yeah, of fun saying, things. Why, yeah, why is it legit? I thought it wasn't all polygamy post second manifesto illegitimate, and it just carried on. I mean, what? How? How are they? Okay, legitimate? we we got the first manifesto. Yeah, when they're like, was hey, eighteen ninety. Around then. Then we got the second one, which was I should look this up. Uh, Nineteen. 05, something like it's that. It's amazing. We have these devices where I can search for this. Oh, magical. This is wonderful. My son's exposing me to technology. 1904. Is this called the Google? Second manifesto was, the second manifesto was 1904. Okay. After, 18, 1890 was the first manifesto, then 1904. After the, the first manifesto, polygamy pretty much started going away in the United States, but as I think most listeners are aware of, significant numbers of members who wanted to continue to practice polygamy went to Canada and to Mexico. Where they believe in religious freedom. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, my uh, grandfather was one of the ones who went to Mexico. And actually, he he was married in the States to his first wife, who wanted to practice polygamy before they were married. That was kind of one of her deals. Her expectations was that he would take additional wives because of the feeling that the sense back then that, you know, that was kind of a route to exaltation. Not that it was guaranteed, but that's what you did if you were faithful. Uh But uh, once they, and I say they, because it was very much a decision of the husband and the wife, once they 
had a second wife, they went down to the Mormon colonies in uh, Colonia Dublon, which is where my mother was raised. But uh, my grandfather, Anson Bowen Call, eventually had four wives. He had the first one, and then the next two each gave birth to one or two children and died young. And then the first wife, who my mom always called Aunt Thressa, I think her name was Mary Teresa, raised those children. Did your mom not know how to read names? Why did she call her Thressa? I don't I'm know. I'm sincerely wondering. Like all her life, not later in life when faculties start drifting. No, they, just that's just how I always heard her. I didn't. You but know. her name was Teresa. Yeah. Okay. Who knows? All right. Uh, don't make too much of that. Not a big deal, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> it's the scandal waiting boy, to be exploited. Are we digressing? Trying to get back to the original thing here. So my grandfather married his fourth wife, who is my grandmother, Julia Abeg. In uh, when when was the second? Oh yeah, that's why I think it was nineteen oh four. Okay, he married... I think I spent time looking this up once. I was trying to reconcile the dates at one point. He married her in 1903. And so it was still... Legit! It was legit in the sense that polygamy was still considered okay in Canada and Mexico. And then the 1904 manifesto came out. And so it was like, we got to cut it out, folks. But in most cases, if you were still... If you were to been practicing polygamy prior to that point, you were allowed to continue. Well, my grandmother was, my goodness, 20 years younger than my grandfather, and they'd married in 1903, and she proceeded to have 12 children over the course of, you know, about 20 years. And so my mother came along in 1925, the 10th child of this marriage, and so it's almost in our family, it's like we're a generation closer to polygamy than most members are yeah. because my grandfather was 60 when yeah. my mom was born. So she she grew up in a polygamous household down in Colonia Dublon. So this article, one thing I noticed about it, I thought it was interesting. There's a new book out by a... a LDS scholar named Brittany Chapman Nash. And I think one of a point that she makes in there, she talks about, oh, you know, everything wasn't black and white. And she said, going into her research, she was thinking all polygamy was bad. And uh, then realized that that kind of couldn't be true. I mean, it was marriage and just like monogamous marriages, some are happy, some aren't. But the idea that, you know, some some polygamous families, she's got some nice quotes in there talking about the relationship between the sister wives and things. But I thought it was interesting coming from a generation, you know, at least one generation older than I think she is. When I was growing up in the church, it was like all polygamy was considered good. You know, it was back when it was still kind of a Whitewashed is a bad word, but it's the only one that comes to mind. Well, you looked at it more like those were the halcyon days, right? Like, yeah, it was great. I mean, we've drifted. We 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 have, we've been forced to yes, drop this, yes. this better so thing. Polygamy was considered or talked about, you know, in a very positive way. And now I think with uh, church history opening up more and going back to more original sources and things, you do get a more nuanced view. But I thought 
she kind of was starting to operate from the opposite position of me, me growing up going, polygamy is wonderful. And then you find out, oh, there were some problems where she's coming from a perspective of polygamy is troublesome, but oh, there were some happy ones. And uh, I know my mother had great love and respect for her mother and for her father. And, uh, you know, polygamy happened and I guess I should be grateful it did or we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. Well, but we'll have to hope it comes back. I mean. We will, huh? No, I don't. It's, <laughs> it's fantastically unappealing. Yes, but I, think I it, agree. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad scholarly. I'm, we are not perfect as a church when it comes to embracing uh, <laughs> the, the wonders of academia and good scholarly research. I think that's a tough balance. I, there's an article we can actually talk about related to that. Uh I'm glad to see we're doing better, at least. We are not doing everything everything we can do, but if you'd have gone back 15 years, we'd still be trying to be just kind of keep the the narrative you grew up with. Polygamy was this great thing, and there was no contra. There, it was, it's well, good that we can actually, dig in more. Actually, believe it or not, my young son, it was more than 15 years ago that researchers were looking into these things. It's just well, sure, sure. pre-internet days. You know, you didn't know about it, like... Uh, Unless you were doing something like going to Sunstone conferences, which I've been known to do, or subscribing to Dialogue. And oh my gosh, you're basically Peggy Fletcher Stack's lackey. It's just <laughs> so. I would wish I have great respect for her. <laughs> uh, but things that, like, I've heard talked about in recent years where they'll talk about, wow, did you know women used to give priesthood blessings? Oh my goodness, blah, blah, blah. Well, I've got a book I got 20, 25 years ago that talked about that. But but that was heretical back then to get it more or less. I mean, right. Oh, true. I mean, true. you mentioned before, like it was the September 6th were excommunicated anniversary this week. Mm-hmm. For a lot of it was for stuff like this, for having the gall to dig into. Mm-hmm interesting parts of church history that we don't want to be part of the, uh, the, ma- the mainstream discussion necessarily, but I think we're getting more mainstream with parts of our discussion. Oh, here's, here's a very interesting point about the September 6th that uh, a well-known church doesn't work for the church, but historian who I will not name because I'm not act- absolutely sure I'm remembering the name correctly, but I heard him in a, in a talk and he was talking about what he kind of called, you know, mischief or troublesome things that sometimes happen when you have a president of the church who is incapacitated, as we had with Spencer W. Kimball for a number of years and with Ezra Taft Benson. And he pointed out that the September 6th excommunications happened at a time that 1993, would that have been Ezra yeah. Taft Benson, yeah. Yeah. was fairly incapacitated. And so we really don't know if the president of the church kind of signed off on this or for it was, uh, you know, forces in the 12 or something that wanted these things carried out. And you could take, you could take that same speculative stance even up to many years, much more recently when we had the November policy about children of, of gay parents not being able to be baptized. And there were many who felt like president Monson was clearly struggling there near the mm-hmm. end. This was near the end of his time. And, there are many who wonder if similar things went down in that case, which is all the more ironic because then the ones who might have done it are the ones who undid it five years later, but hey, whatever. So who knows? And we know we're not supposed to speculate, but we're big speculators. It's, it's so much fun to speculate. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> conference season in a couple of weeks. I got temple predictions to think about. It's just so much fun to speculate. We've got to speculate. It's fun to speculate. See, we in Jeff's family, in my family growing up, 
we had a thing that we'd all get together and we'd sit around my parents' dining room table as adults and we would talk about religion, politics, and medicine. That was always the subjects about it. And Which I wonder how it would be nowadays. I think when we were all younger, that was the norm. And the politics were always fine. I mean, I think even with diversity within a family's ranks, our family's pretty good about having like respectful dialogue about different things. But I do think a lot of the grandkids, once my age, we've all skewed a lot more liberal as we've become adults than you guys were. And now we're not around having those conversations at the same time because we're all off living our lives. I wonder how it would be today. That's just one of my... I don't know because... When I was growing up and I was a young person, I thought my parents were conservative fuddy-duddies. But as I became an adult, I realized my parents were very moderate, open-minded, respectful. Super woke. Oh, I wouldn't call them woke, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they listened to both sides of discussions and things. Well, Phil Collins tells us you have to listen to both sides of the story. Mm -hmm. There's a whole song about that. (laughs) Well, I think there's a couple of things we could hit, we could touch on here. So Peggy Fletcher Stack, your hero, wrote uh, an article about this. Uh, basically, how can unique BYU? This is coming back to kind of some of the Elder Holland stuff from the past few weeks. But can can unique BYU really be true to its two missions, faith and scholarship? Basically, faith and scholarship are often at odds with one another. It is hard to reconcile the two in an effective way. BYU struggles with that. Elder Holland challenged them to remember, challenged school administrators and professors to remember. Yes, this is an academic institution, but it's also its primary purpose is to support the mission of the church. And like he described it, the church that essentially bankrolls it more or less. Um, we, we happen upon this. It's a bigger, it's a very long article that goes into a lot of interesting areas. And I think it's actually well worth a read. Um, the one thing that jumped out at me, of course, is in recent days, it's come to light that Ben Park, who's been a guest on the show here at Kingdom of Nauvoo, which was a terrific volume that, that spoke about the Nauvoo period. Um, he's done work with the Maxwell Institute and curiously, all of that has disappeared in recent days. And we don't know if it is because of an op-ed he recently penned in the Washington Post, or it's because some of his private Facebook posts have, um, sided with BYU students who have been unhappy about, you know, their treatment, um, you know, of LBGTQ members and the like. So that's, that's kind of how this started because I've been following for the past few days that he'd been scrubbed. And then Peggy mentions this in the article. There's no... We have no public reasoning for it. Uh, ben Park's been on the record just saying, I don't know either. Once again, we'd be speculating about what it could be, but no one notified him or anything like that. Just all his work, his podcast interviews disappeared. Um, but this is a, mu- oh, there's Ben right there in the article, but uh, he worries he doesn't have a place there. And Ben's like an active member of the church. Like he's, yeah, so that's curious. But the bigger question is, where's the line? Like, are we getting this poise point where we're like, BYU is basically censoring academics because it doesn't align with the mission of the church necessarily, according to administrators. I don't know what we do about this or what the solution would be. It's messy. And as she points out in the article and in things up, she quotes from Gary Bergera's book. He wrote a book about history of BYU that I've read. Uh, Evolution was a huge problem there. Like when was that back in the 1920s and 30s and things? Uh, could that be taught at the school or not? You had uh, a number of general authorities saying, you know, absolutely not. And you had professors saying, ah, oh, we can teach this. And that was a huge controversy. It's ended up, you know, calming down, being resolved. Evolution is taught in science classes at BYU. Uh, I think the whole issue of how the church handles gays is. It's tough. There's no visible 
good solutions short of having a revelation. Yeah. And would that negate our whole idea of gender being eternal? You know, it's messy. Yeah. I have a friend who is on the faculty at BYU and who has said, uh, you know, she said, we know that we have gay students. She said, we're not, she goes, I'm not going to get up and preach against uh, same-sex marriage because I don't want to offend my students. And I guess Elder Holland's saying the faculty does need to stand for the position of the church. And it's hard, even in his remarks that he gave, if you read the whole speech, not just the little part that's gotten all the notoriety, he talks about, I think, the anguish and things that general authorities have felt in trying to figure out how to deal with this issue. And you look back on the history of uh, blacks receiving the priesthood. There was a lot of that anguish going on for years there, too, before it was resolved. Yeah. I mean, it went back as far as President McKay was exploring overturning the the, the priesthood ban, but it didn't happen at the time. They didn't feel good about it, you know, mm-hmm. it took, of course, up until 20-odd years later with uh, President Kimball to get there. And even this article talks about how, like, some of the things said by people, like President Harold B. Lee, this isn't us. This is not mom and Jeff picking things apart. This is literally quotes from President Lee who said as much as, because for context, the uh, the US, the federal government in the United States was sort of hunting down BYU, whether BYU was violating, I forgot which, which rules or titles or what have you, but essentially it was not inclusive enough um, as far as racial politics went. And so President Lee said something to the effect of, and I know I'll butcher this quote, but basically if, uh, like I will shut the school down before we allow black students at BYU. Which is crazy. And the funny thing is, like, why wouldn't you allow black like black students? It's not saying black students even with the priesthood. It's not is is having the priesthood a requirement to be a be a BYU student in the first place? I don't think so. I think you can attend there as long as you keep the rules. Like it has nothing to do with priesthood ordination, but uh, it's a different world. I know, right? Different generations. I'm thankful for President Kimball. He, <laughs> he was a firebrand, and it's amazing what uh, it is. Funny. This is once again back to our lovely world of speculation. But it's curious, at least, that you had President McKay for a very long time, twenty almost twenty years. He was church president when he passed away. Then you had Joseph Fielding Smith, who was older and had bad health, didn't last very long. President Lee, but came, was very conservative. But was very conservative. Lee came in, who was also pretty conservative and was young, and everyone thought he'd be around for a while, and then also died. Very, he set a record at the time for the shortest um, tenure, mm-hmm. which I think was set by Fielding Smith right before him. Um, and then we get to President Kimball. I've seen, I've read many articles of people who are convinced this means like God was just trying to like you know burn through those two so he could get back to a property would get things done. And whatever. That's that's nothing that we can actually know or. I'll, and it's even callous to kind of assume things. Yes, now you're speculating beyond where even I was. Thank you. But um, <laughs> and there's no there's no answers there. But I think it is fascinating to watch the history of leadership in the church and who does what and when and how and how the Lord uses certain people to get things done. I mean, a perfect a perfect example. Look at President Nelson. For goodness' sake, I mean, when we saw articles, we have an article coming out this week on Twim because President Nelson turns 97 this week on September 9th, and that will make him the. Uh, He's already the third longest living apostle in the history of the church. He 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 met that milestone uh, earlier this year when he passed Legrand Richards, who was ninety six years old, eleven months. So President Nelson's now older than him, and the only church president who was older when he died was President Hinckley. And if President Nelson makes it until April of next year, he will be the oldest president in the church's history. Not the longest tenured, obviously, but it's funny because this was Corey, one of our writers, wrote this, and there's links from. Uh, 
when President Nelson assumed office in 2018, when everyone, all the media assumed this would just be kind of a caretaker scenario, we're not going to rock the boat very much. This man is very old. It's just going to kind of be steady as she goes for a bit until more quote unquote capable people come in. And so I love hindsight on this, thinking back on the three uh, three and a half years of President Nelson mm-hmm. and realizing now he's swept in here and been like, oh, I'll show you what I can do in three years as church president and what we can get done. Uh, I think that's a great lesson to all of us that you could be church president for 20 years and just be perfectly happy with the status quo and do very little. Or you could be someone who, to borrow language from Elizabeth Warren, wants to affect real structural change, radical structural change, which he's done. I mean, President Nelson's absolutely done that. It's been fascinating to watch that, especially from somebody no one thought would do anything. Well, I want to go back to uh, Spencer W. Kimball for a minute, too, because he was, what, church president when I was maybe about, you know, your age. Younger generation. And again, he was someone no one thought would ever be president of the church. He'd had health problems. He'd had, I think, his part of his larynx yeah, removed was, or something. He was he all messed gravelly. up. Yeah, he's this little old man that's, you know, fallen apart. And no one ever, including him, ever thought he'd be president of the church. Then Harold B. Lee dies unexpectedly at a young age. And again, you get. And I'm sure the mood then was like, ah, oh, this isn't like, there, there was there. Ex- cultural exhaustion so you'd have two church presidents die within like four years at that point was it you know i, think, I don't remember i was too, i was in college i don't because you could see i could see that being like oh boy we've lost two so quickly and then this it's true and then growing Kimball up was in bad health like we're gonna have another one who because we died, had right? like president mckay i think was president of the church when i was born and he was president of the church while i was in college he was yeah. just always there yeah but spencer w kimball was just a huge surprise i remember reading an article long time ago, decades ago. Mm-hmm. But it was someone that was a historian looking at church presidents as prophet caretakers versus prophet innovators. And at that time, I think he had Joseph Smith and Brigham Young as innovators and Spencer W. Kimball, because it was beyond uh, priesthood for the blacks. He had... Uh, I think we changed... Did we go to three-hour church then? Um New styles of garments. Was it under oh, Kimball when you went away from the, the broken up block and you, you moved to the Sunday block? Was that with Kimball? I think so. I, know, I, I really don't remember for sure. But again, it was. Uh, it really shows the Lord's hand at work with President Kimball and President Nelson, these older men that the world would think could do nothing, and they just get in there and shake things up. I have long felt, this is just my personal opinion, but reading Spencer W. Kimball's biography and things, he had such a great love for people all around the world. Uh, Just this great love, and I could see it being a matter of personal heartbreak to him that the blessings of the temple were not extended to members in places like Brazil and things that that I've thought, and we know from reading accounts of it, that he really wrestled with the Lord, with this whole topic and wanting to do what was right. But I can, I've always just thought of him as being personally brokenhearted that blessings of the temple were not extended to everyone. That's just my little personal speculation. I I would see that as well. And I think you couple that with the fact that revelation is often driven by by your personal thoughts. It's driven by pragmatism too, at times. And the church was in a place in the late seventies when South Africa was one issue. You know, we built a temple there in the eighties but racial issues there were one thing and we wanted to thrive there. And obviously the church was restricted in, in many ways to the largely, you know, Dutch history, you know, all the, mm-hmm. all the Afrikan people. 
Um, and then, but Brazil presented the biggest issue from yes. what I read here because so much of Brazil's population is mixed race. And it was like, where do you draw a line? Are you having people present? We weren't doing like ancestry DNA back then, or you yeah. know, like present like I'm X percented. You have to meet a certain threshold of not being black to get the yeah. person. And almost, it's like an untenable situation. And it, and it just shows you that as we globalize as a church, the brethren also had to be like, yeah. It's one thing for this to have even worked as much as we can say it worked. The priesthood ban worked in a North American context. But once you start factoring in the the racial issues abroad, it's just like, what would you even do? The church couldn't survive. And you fast forward to today, where's all the church growth happening? West Africa, South America, for the most part. Yeah. You know? I mean, if it were not for that revelation, there would be no church in West Africa. There would not be temples going up like gangbusters. And every time you follow up, there's like a new stake somewhere in Ghana or Nigeria or Sierra Leone or somewhere all the time, which is... Pretty darn rad. Well, um, a couple quick mentions for you, by the way. Elder Dean M. Davies passed away this week. He was quiet about it. You might remember he was a uh, he was in the presiding bishopric, if I'm not mistaken, correctly. And they, re- they yes. kind of quietly released him. And when they started doing that, I was like, oh, are we organizing the whole thing? They just released him. And that was what, last conference? It was not or, long or ago. October. It was at maximum one year ago, I would yeah. say. And, but, but no, Bishop Kaze stayed there. They moved... Um, one whose name I should know because he was a mission president in my mission. Waddell. Oh, made him the first They shifted Waddell to the first second. counselor, called a new second counselor. And that was it. It was kind of like, okay, they're clearly very, very obviously releasing Davies altogether. What we didn't know at the time because the church respects people's privacy in these matters um, is he was ha- dealing with a very serious battle with cancer. And so he passed away at age uh, 69 uh, this past week, having been a general authority or a church employee for much of his life. And, uh, Heart goes out to his family. I mean, I'm sure it was a long battle, and at some point this was expected, but that doesn't make it any easier to deal with the passing of a loved one or a beloved leader at the time. And uh, there is that interesting story about uh, Elder Davies and uh, getting a site for the Philadelphia Temple. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Was that in uh, Church News? It was in the The Church News. Did they just print that again this week? I had read it previously, but it... It's just, it's interesting talking about how Elder Davies and Elder Sikahema, mm-hmm. who was uh, not a general authority then, he was a sportscaster in Philadelphia, but had been a former pro football player and things. Yeah. But how they kind of uh, talked the mayor and the city council into letting them have a temple site. Do you want to review that at all, or do you want? I don't know the article super well, so if you do, go ahead. I mean, okay. For context, the big deal here is well, a temple in general. There's, there's, outside of outside of Utah, where I think it really is mostly rubber stamped. There can be some back and forth with the municipality about building a temple, and in Philadelphia, the temple is in the city center. It's not like they built it out in King of Prussia or somewhere on a random suburban lot. It is right in the middle of major historic areas around the city, which is yeah, a huge cool. get. It's a huge get for the church, but that presents extra. Extra complicated. Okay. Well, trying to see how well I remember this, but I believe they had a, the site, which is where the temple ended up. The city had said, uh, no, we're building something else there. It was a parking lot, by the way, at the time. So. <laughs> That's right. You and I visited it, but they were going to put something else in there. And Elder Davies and Brother Sikahema went to meet with the mayor and maybe the whole city council. And... Uh, the initial discussion was, uh, no, this isn't happening. We're going to put up whatever it is we want to put up there. And then somehow, uh, Brother Sikahema, who, like I said, was well-known, I think already knew the mayor, he started talking about the importance of temples t- to his family because he grew up where in the 
Pacific Islands someplace yes. in there, and talked about the sacrifices that his parents had made for them to be able to go to a temple and be sealed together. And uh, it kind of changed the tenor of the whole meeting. Yeah. And, and then uh, they said that they actually asked them, um, at the end of the meeting, the mayor asked if Elder Davies would offer a prayer, and Elder Davies got up and blessed the mayor and his family. And Elder Sikahema says like that, and he blessed his associates, and that was really powerful, and the mayor's heart changed. And eventually they, they came around yeah, and so, said, you can have it. It's a really nice story. Go ahead. And I think it's, it's typical of, as I've grown older, I see more and more of what I see or would define as miracles happening is, is things like that where circumstances change, people's hearts are softened, or, you know, Things just fall in place, so something can happen that you wouldn't have think have been able to happen. Yeah. So that's just a lovely story. Well, that's cool, uh, Mom. Real quick question for you: How jazzed are you about the Orbelinda California Temple? Oh, I am like so jazzed. It would be messed up if I, you know, didn't talk about it because I talk about it way too much on this show. But I'm just I could get there. It's like ten minutes from my house on Surface Streets. Unbelievable. Who and I know a lot of Utah listeners are like, yeah, and and, <laughs> but um. For those of us outside of Zion, it's a it's a much bigger deal. I would, I'd love to take Serpent Street to a temple. That'd be awesome. It's so funny looking at a map of it, knowing exactly where it's going to be, and just saying like, "Okay, sure." We, it's like we two do miles feel away. sad in uh, our stake, which was uh, dissolved and combined with you know boundaries were rejiggered last December, yeah. and we lost. There were several Yorbaland awards that were in the Anaheim East stake, but one Yorbaland award which is where the temple site which, is. Which, which used to be two. <laughs> Yorbaland Awards 1 and 2 were part of our stake growing up, and then they consolidated They booted them off into the other stake. Otherwise... The temple would be in your stake. Yes. Yeah. It's just barely And now over it's the literally four or 500 feet yeah. from the stake line. So you don't... So now, so now the newly christened Yorbalinda stake was. This is just classic optics by the church. It was the Anaheim East stake forever, which is the Anaheim Hills region of Anaheim and at parts of Yorbalinda. They've now relabeled it the Yorbalinda stake, probably so that it's the Yorbalinda Temple can be in the Yorbalinda stake, and that's yeah. very nice. And oh, happy day! Very good for all of them. Anaheim gets does not get the representation anymore, and Yorbalinda gets its own stake. Yorbalinda doesn't deserve to have a stake named after itself. You know why? Why not? Because nobody nice can place. move there. It's the, like the least affordable city in the region. Oh, Villa Park's worst, maybe. <laughs> but Villa Park's so small, you don't expect it yeah. to like have even its own ward. It's just this little thing. Your Belinda had two wards growing up because in our stake, but because nobody could move in there, they had to your consolidate. Your got to five. There's, they had five, five, but they couldn't maintain it because they don't have, it, it, people can't move in. And that's the whole issue facing your entire region. Nobody can afford to move into the area. And so they're all moving out to horrible places like Hemet. Or San Jacinto or something. And nobody wants to live there, but they do there because they have to. Oh, don't insult the good people out there in the Inland Empire. I'm not insulting them. I'm insulting the regions themselves. <laughs> maybe some people do want to maybe live some, there. Maybe someday I, too, can live in Menifee, you know, and, and that'll be the dream. And Hey, your Uncle Bob lives in Redlands, and who Redlands knew Redlands would get a, in a temple? In a normal world, in a normal world. An anchor city like San Bernardino would be the one to get a temple. In a normal, I'm saying because in a normal world, it would be like, San Bernardino is a big town. I mean, I mean, the yeah. greater LA area is so big, you have massive cities that would be a whole, there would be their own metropolitan area in another yeah. situation, like Long Beach, poor Long Beach. Long Beach lives in the shadow of LA and would easily anchor its own metropolitan area. San Bernardino is kind of the same deal out there. Big city founded by members of the church. But because San Bernardino is a, a just a wasteland bereft of hope, 
or peace. It's a it's a rough place. Of course, the temple's not going to go there, but they get to Redlands next door, which is oddly very close to San Bernardino. And uh, Redlands, but is a, Redlands is a very nice city. Redlands is a great city with cool history, old Victorian houses, all kinds of neat stuff. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense they built it where they uh, built it. Hey, so in the in the Evans family now, my goodness, we got the Redlands Temple next to uh, one of my brothers, the new one that's going up in the Willamette Valley. Oh yeah, got another brother up by Eugene. Got the Yorba Linda one. You know, and, and I was my br- other siblings are already going to be halfway in between Yorba Linda and Newport Beach. Yeah. I was going to bring that up because they did announce the third temple in Oregon was initially announced for Eugene, Oregon, but they've renamed it the Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. Willamette, Willamette, I got to pronounce that correctly. Willamette Valley, Oregon Temple instead of Eugene. Eugene's at the southern end of the Willamette Valley. I don't know why it gets to lay claim to the whole valley. The whole population center of Oregon's in the entire valley. The Portland, Oregon Temple's also in the valley. <laughs> But anyway, it but anyway, means like... It also looks like it might be the Orbelin Temple. It's 30,000 square feet. It's part of this generation that was announced in April. So maybe that's what yours is going to look like. Who knows? I think they're going to tear down your meeting house, though. I think the meeting I house think there. they're going to, too. Jeff I think, and I will speculate on I that. Think, I think that's... Because the meeting house is the one that faces the street. If they were to put the temple behind it, you don't want to hide the temple. No. So... Anyway, we don't have to bore people too much with this talk. Because there's lots of, there's 20 new temples announced and they all deserve their own stories. So if you people want to come speculate on TWIM, you let me know. Well, and I, will uh, give, I, think, I will give voice to you as I well. think clearly they've been placing these temples where the Evans family siblings will have access, you know, for, th- for some reason. That's, yeah? prob- that's probably been what's behind That's them, the you thing. Know? Redlands, Yarba Linda, Newport Beach, and now Willamette None Valley. None of us live in Newport Beach. We're not classy enough. But, you know, We're not it classy. was- I know. We're like, it was well, close. We're, we're, we're family practice money, okay? We're not like <laughs> cardiovascular money, all right? Um, come on. Oh, good old Newport. My father built the temple. That was for you, Al. Anyway, that's the whole... <laughs> we had an associate once years ago who wanted to remind us that basically said my father like paid for the temple in Newport Beach, and we were like, oh, oh, oh well, okay. It's been a long running joke. Hey, we years. we helped pay for the temple in Newport Beach too. We didn't. That's actually that's actually kind of a satisfying thing. I don't know how often this has happened in the history of the church where they've been they, hardly they, ever. It's hardly ever, but I'd love to know exactly when when they've let the saints basically say the church is not dipping into the temple funds department to build this. It is on all of you to get the money. You can get away with that somewhere like Orange County, and I'm sure the brethren uh, approached and invited quote unquote some various wealthy benefactors in the region to probably drop, you know, a, a casual one or $2 million or something to help out. Cause I think the temple was about 19 million to build it, something like that. But it was kind of cool. Even with like my little college job at the time and I kicked in what I could. So I think like, no, everybody was asked to sacrifice. Yeah. It wasn't just the millionaires. Yeah, so, I no, mean, I, I made a significant financial contribution and, uh, and it hurt financially to do it. And I, th- we got some pretty fabulous blessings on our family yeah, thereafter. Yeah. So, you know, and, and it's cool. Like, I don't know, even, even going there, I like to look at it and be like, I didn't have much of the time, but like, Hey, like I, I paid for this doorknob, <laughs> but like that was possible because I helped. Right. And that's, that's a cool thing. We're kind of long on time. We were going to talk about the whole uh, Texas abortion law in the Latter-day Saint context, but I don't know if we have time, time to get into that. I don't think we have time to get into that. And that's I haven't true. even told any embarrassing stories about your childhood or oh, anything, you know, that's true. So- let's, let's devote, go ahead. Tell them. Well, you know, Je- Jeff was a nearly perfect child, of course. Um, I was your, I was your cuddly baby. You've said he this. was my cuddly baby, and yes. I've always been your favorite. So, not true. Anyway, <laughs> but Jeff- Melanie and Colin, you should see the, you know, the look she just made. <laughs> but Jeff, 
has always had this ability to make me laugh. And so he rarely got in trouble because he could crack his mother up. So also the other thing I was good at was deflecting blame. Very good oh, at that. Oh, Jeff was a master manipulator from a young age. Yes. yes. If you look back at our family, it's of, fighting me now with my three sons. <laughs> if you look back on our family of four children, uh, three of them took turns being the one picked on in things that were led by the one who was never picked on, which was Jeff. And he's not the oldest kid. He was a I second didn't pick kid. on them. It was more I created like fall guys for my schemes. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to come back to me. It was going to come back to someone else. It's you about, know what? It's about self-preservation. Do you remember that? Um, I don't know if you've heard this story. You must have. Uncle Fred, my dad's older brother, telling my brothers that I used to do that when I was little and make them the fall guys. Well, there we go. You know, you made your brothers the fall guys. Yeah, for my schemes. So I guess it's hereditary. It's not your fault. You see these things. You see, (laughs) it's my fault. It was just. (laughs) I do remember. I'd sometimes my older sister would. I I would do something wrong to bother my older sister, and she'd get so mad about it that I'd like I'd read the situation and ease off because she'd get like so upset about the whole situation. I'd just kind of like walk away, and then Allison would be the one to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. We're getting all mad. And I just like go back to my room and mind my own business. And you guys completely forgotten that I, I was the one who did something wrong in the first place. You taught me I can be corrupt. And what? <laughs> so thank, no, no, no. Thank you. I didn't teach you, you to be corrupt. Well, Jeff you know. spray painted the house black once, though. That was one of I don't, his. And I have no idea why I did that. I still don't know why I did that. He had a can of spray paint, and he went out under his sister's window and I was, spray painted the stucco black. There was no like malicious intent. There was nothing. I wasn't. I wasn't like deliberately trying to stick it to anybody. I don't know why I did that. I think it was mostly I thought spray paint was interesting, and I wanted to see how it was going to work. I spray painted. I remember I spray painted the ho- the nozzle we have out there to plug a hose in. And my Allison, my sister, said she saw me doing it. And I just had like this dumb look on my face, like I was just going like dur, 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 and just doing it. And then in retribution, my dad took my poster of a Lamborghini Countach, which every kid should have at that age, and spray painted all over it to teach me a lesson, and then hung it back up. And I was convinced he wrote the words "die" on it. <sighs> no way! Oh, come on, Jeff. <laughs> that was my Rorschach moment. <laughs> That's what it said to it me. It was not. I've never heard you say that. Any and- other embarrassing stories? You want to hear one I'm ashamed of that's an embarrassing story? Not really for me, but I, I'm personally ashamed of it, oh. my behavior. Okay. When I was like 14, I want to say, which is a bad year for you know any kids, right? Uh, from bad this years. mother's experience, 14-year-old boys are the most obnoxious creatures on and, the earth. And so there was a band of it. I was in the band in high school, as longtime listeners know. And I was a freshman now in high school doing the band. My mom was very busy. She was a single mom, lots going on, other kids to worry about. So you didn't get to do much in the way of helping out as a booster parent for a lot of the events we had, which I think was understandable. You chipped in when you could. Because there were some parents who were like every weekend, they were banding, right? And you you did not have that bandwidth. I did when Colin and Melanie were Later on, it was easier for you, which is fine. And so we were hosting a field show tournament like we did at the high school. And I think you were working in the cafeteria at the stadium there, something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, the snack shop. That's The snack shop. Was. You were helping out doing that. That's where I always was. Is that because you could pick them off the snacks during the day because you're a notorious snacker? You love the snacking, Mom. I didn't steal you snacks. You love the snacks. Snack I have shop. it on good authority. You stole snacks. I did not. You're making <laughs> this up. I've so, never heard this in my life. And so... There was a, a uh, what was what did you call that? A program, a banner, something like that. And I believe you put, parents would put, take out pages in there as part of the fundraiser, like congratulating their kids, whatever they were. And I think you put that picture of me standing up in the bath with my butt. Wasn't no, it, wasn't I would put that wasn't one Wasn't that there. one? What was it? No. It was, was the picture? some cute picture when you were a little boy. Maybe you had your sunglasses and your giant teddy bear. 
the train station. I it might have been something like that. Either way, as a 14-year-old, I was like, I was horrified because I was like, how dare this be a thing? People will think I'm a fool. In this lovely quarter-page thing saying how proud uh, I was of you. And so I stormed over to the snack bar, and I think I gave you like a mouthful, like right there in front of people, which I should yes. have done. I feel bad about that one. That was, I shouldn't have done that. I was a 14-year-old, but I shouldn't have done that. You should not. I've had pain in my heart for all these decades. I don't think you even remembered it until I brought it up right now. I know you've brought it up before, so yeah. Well, yes, I'd forgotten no. it. But well, mom, any other stories you would like so, to? Anything come to mind? You're welcome to embarrass me all you want. You know, you can put me in my place. You can let the listeners know who I really am behind the scenes because <laughs> who you really are comes across pretty well in your broadcasts. Oh, I think. Darn it all. Well, anyway, so well, that's. I guess that's it then. Fine. He said. He's a pretty good kid. Oh, then now you say that. Fine. You are. Fine. I've always been proud of you. One of my favorite things I found recently is I was looking at some old video, family videos, and there's this one random moment when I must have been nine-ish maybe, maybe a bit older. And it and it's great because it just comes out of nowhere like the camera. Because, you know, old home videos, you just stop recording something on your camcorder, then hit record again for the next one. So, you know, it just cuts, 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 cuts. There's no good editing or anything like that. So whatever else was happening before doesn't matter. And it cuts, and all of a sudden it's me on a tr- like a tricycle but not just a, like a tricycle for like a two-year-old like designed for very small people to be able to pedal around clearly for the twins but i'm out front on the lawn on the sidewalk with my knees like up to my face riding it <laughs> as hard as i can and i had this look of dumb glee <laughs> that i can barely describe i need to find i should make a gif of that and share it with our with our audience i can maybe do that and it is gif everybody not gif and i say that as someone who has a soft g in his name so you should take it upon me authority so well if you don't have any more stories mom we'll cut it then we'll say the show is done should i tell him why you have a nay a jeff with a soft g if you want to sure by this point there's probably four people listening but they'll be delighted to know (laughs) i know we've been going for ages this will get cut back when i was in high school and i was in student government she she took a lover (sighs) oh please no i did not there's a good little mormon girl this was on student council and I was a senior, but the sophomore class president was named Jeffrey Lucius Patterson. Oh, Lucius is dope, man. He, he is He is now an uh, Emmy-winning cameraman in L.A. I bet he something. has an IMDb page. <sighs> anyway, but uh, his name was spelled Jeffrey with a G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. And I love that. And I decided then and there that if I ever had a, a first son, I was going to name him Jeffrey. And one of my best friends from high school also named her first son Jeffrey, spelled that way. So it's due to him that you now have Jeffrey with a G a name as your twin have, host. Yes, and people have called me George and Greg for much of my life. <laughs> well, look at this Jeffrey guy. Well, I'll spare you this, but he I'm assuming this is Jeffrey Patterson. Sound department? You say he's a sound engineer or is he a cinematographer? Oh, I don't know. Well, I don't know, but he's doing, he did the sound for Twister, people. If you loved the movie Twister, the Gus Van Sant classic from 25, 25 years ago. Oh my gosh. Anyway, you can enjoy that. Well, that's terrific, Mom. Thank you for giving that. Now you know that. He didn't know that. Your name comes from, of course, your parents' long love of Barbara Streisand, and they decided to add an extra E to, an A to it. Yeah, she wasn't even around when I was born. But I did read a thing talking about 
you know, the most popular names of the year. And Barbara actually was the most popular girl's name in the United States a few years before I was born. So, cool. you know, it was trendy then. I have been on a mission to make sure my children rank very low on those sorts of lists. I, I think we've gotten more <laughs> increasingly esoteric as it's gone down. Yes. <laughs> the boys. All right. Well, folks, we've uh, we've covered you plenty here. Thanks for entertaining us and indulging us as my dear mother and I. And, and to be sincere, my mom is one of the best and I love her immensely, even though I was a terrible 14-year-old. I think I'm very thankful she and I actually have a very close and loving relationship and I'm glad she's here because uh, she is the best and she's my good pal oh thank you well you didn't say that with much sincerity <laughs> I said a real thing to you I said thank you you said oh thank no, you no I said oh thank you okay now okay, I'm we'll crying finish up here, no, I'm we'll finish up here so you can go play with the, the, the kid you came here to visit in the first place I That's came to visit my son Jeffrey it, who's <laughs> having a big birthday this week <laughs> He's turning 65. <laughs> My son, Jeffrey, who's having a big birthday. It'd be nice or I'll tell people the appetizer story. Let's be careful about that. I don't... It's on. <laughs> no. Years ago, we were all going to dinner. And being bratty, like whatever, late teenagers we were, for some reason, we were, my mom wanted to order an appetizer. But for some reason, it, this, is, this is strict inside joke nonsense. But she said, when she wanted, she looked at the server and she said, I would like an appetizer. And for some reason, this has stuck with us as kids. You know how it is. All your families have things like this. But we've laughed for years about my mom speaking to a server like she's a four-year-old. <laughs> we should do a show with all of the siblings and you, and then we'll really have a good time. Oh, yeah. You told me. Have I, by the way, have I given you a positive experience? Yes, this has been a lot of fun. Okay, good. That would. I, th I think I should probably like you know do this every week or something. Take okay. over the show, something like that. No, sure, because oh, I'm going to deal with you navigating the technology in California. <laughs> to do this. It's a miracle we've even made. The, this is like literally the only way we'd ever pull this off. You in the same room on the same computer. Yes, to the same board. All right, folks. What we're going to run then? This has been a great week. Um, Lots of cool news to cover. Hope it's been worthwhile for all of you. Uh, nothing else you want to cover news-wise? You okay? Do you feel satiated? You, you happy? Yes. I, okay. I do have to tell the listeners, I was very sad there wasn't some humongous controversial story that I could wax eloquent upon this week. But we've learned about China. We did. And we've speculated. So and it's we speculated. Great. So, so it's been great. It's all good. All right. Well, Mom, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for I look, having I look me. forward to spending the remainder of your vacation time here in our home. <laughs> And I look forward to the cheesecake you will make me tonight. That'll be very nice. Yes, his birthday cheesecake. I get one every year. Until then, everybody, thank you very much for taking the time to tune in. Really appreciate it. We can't do Twin without you. This is a labor of love, and we're glad you're a part of it. We hope you'll share this show with people you know and love. If you never have, seriously, put it in your social media feed, wherever you get the podcast. Like, go on Spotify, find our show, share the link. Boom. Done. That would be awesome. So, thanks, everybody. Talk to you later. This Week in Mormons is out. Bye. Bye, Babsy. Thank you.